Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Littman during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My normal partner in this enterprise Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at Center for Strategic and International Studies, is traveling in the Middle East. Uh, He'll be back uh, in the new year to join us. But I'm joined today by a very special guest and a former colleague in both government and at the U.S. Institute of Peace, Ambassador Bill Taylor, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, former Charge d'Affaires, to Keefe in a very interesting uh, point of time, a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, distinguished military officer, served in two of America's storied military units, the 82nd and 101st Airborne, uh, also with a master's in international public policy from Harvard, and uh, someone who with whom I've had the pleasure of working uh, across uh, 30 years in government. So, Bill, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Eric, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be here. So let's start uh, with the state of play on all things Ukraine. Uh, we're, we're actually recording this at the exact same time that President Zelensky is meeting with President Biden. So we don't know the outcome of that uh, visit. But what's your sense of the state of play on the Hill? What are the odds we're going to get this supplemental package that's so desperately Uh, needed. As you may have seen, Jane Harmon and I, the co-chairs of the National Defense Strategy Commission, had an op-ed in The Hill last week calling uh, on behalf of all the bipartisan members of the commission for passage of this legislation. It's a little bit hard to figure out how we get from here to there, even though there still seems to be a majority in both houses uh, for uh, in support of this. Kind of where does this stand? And as a former ambassador, uh, how well advised do you think it was for Zelensky to make this uh, appearance here? So, Eric, on that last question is a good one. Um, uh, and several people have, have have discussed this. I've had conversations about this. Um, and it gets to your earlier part of your question. That is how how serious it is, how dire um, the situation is. Um, the Ukrainians need this support. The Ukrainians uh, know that the United States is the single largest uh, uh, provider um, of, of weapons, of ammunition, of intelligence, um, of the things that they need if they're going to defend themselves against the Russians. Um, and um, with, the, with the funds rapidly running out, you spent time in that building. Um, you know how the, uh, how the accounting goes. And, uh, uh, and uh, all of your old colleagues are telling me the same thing. That is... Uh, there's, it's, it's down to fumes. It's down to the bottom. So, so, and and Zelensky knows this, and the Ukrainians know this, and so it gets to your question about taking the risk of coming here, um, and it is a risk. It, it was a risk for him to make make this decision. Um, if he can't convince Congress, uh, the American people more broadly, um, then it will be seen to have failed. Not a good thing. Um, he has uh, he has the support of, of virtually all Ukrainians. Um, he has uh, demonstrated a leadership, um, an 
being able to inspire the Ukrainians, not just the Ukrainians, inspire the world um, on, on, this, uh, on this fight. So this is a big risk. Um, and if it uh, goes badly, if he doesn't, uh, if he's not able to, to convince enough people to pass this, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a big problem for him. It's a big problem for Ukraine. He knows that. So, so it's a risk. But on the other hand, he had to do it because it is so dire, because it is so important, because it is uh, uh, critical that he get this assistance. He had, I, I think he probably figured he had no choice. His, uh, his chief of staff, the head of the presidential administration, Andrei Yermak, was just here last week, um, of course, making the same case and talking to similar kinds of people, not, you know, not quite the level um, that President Zelensky is this time. But, uh, but I'm sure Andrei Yermak went back and said, you know, uh, you, you could do this, boss. You could do this, Mr. President. Um, uh, and I'm sure he thought... Zelensky and Yermak and that team thought very carefully about this and figured that they, they, they had to do it. Now, that gets to your question about how balled up it is, how, what, what, the, what the chances are. Um, and I totally agree with you that um, if this were to get to a vote and it'll pass easily, four to one in the Senate, um, if, even on the House floor, uh, probably, you know, three to one. Um, um, a majority, bipartisan majority um, in both houses would, would support this. Uh, the American people, you know, there have been polls and polls, but uh, American people, even though it's not the same level of support it was a year ago, they still support by, by majorities, solid majorities, uh, more support for, for Ukraine um, and continuing you know, assistance. But it's gotten wrapped up. This uh, Ukraine assistance has gotten wrapped up um, with the assistance for Israel, um, as well as the whole border question, the, the defense of the border. And to be fair, um, President Biden did put all of those together in a package. And so he almost invited this, uh, uh, this confluence, this, uh, uh, this confusion, uh, uh, this delay capability um, uh, by putting Ukraine assistance in with these other controversial pieces, uh, in particular border. Um, and so uh, President Linsky is here. He, now he, he's, uh, it's interesting, Eric. Um, I was at a, at a meeting with him with a small number of people last night over at the embassy, uh, Ukrainian embassy. And, and he got, he was there to kind of ask for advice on how to, how to deal with all this and answer questions. He was very open. Um, uh, and he got, Two different sets of advice uh, about how to deal with this border question. One, one set of advice, people said, you know, Mr. President, um, you know something about borders. <laughs> you've, uh, uh, you've been defending and moving back toward and trying to em emphasize the importance of borders. You could say something about that. Uh, and, but then another th thread of advice was, Mr. President, be real careful not to get involved in domestic, in our U.S. domestic politics, um, um, which is interesting. And I had a similar conversation, Eric, with him um, and Yermak uh, back in 2019 um, when he was uh, in danger of getting wrapped up in domestic politics then. So it's the same kind of issue now. Um, my bet is uh, he will be making the case that you and I just talked about the importance of providing this assistance for Ukraine at this point um, so that they can succeed on the battlefield. We, we, I want to come back to your good question about, uh, uh, about what that means. 
but but the, what, it, what it clearly means, what as far as the United States support goes, it is crucial. And so he's here making that case. And you're right, we'll we'll listen to him and President Biden when they come out of their meeting and, and make the statement. But uh, th- this is an important time. As a former ambassador, not to Ukraine, but to other places, uh, you know, really would not be wise for him for the long run to get in the middle of a, a very contentious American domestic a political debate. I mean, I take the intellectual point about the importance of borders. Uh, that's sort of right intellectually. It's just probably not right, you know, politically, you know, for, for him. Bill, do you share my sense that of two things? One, that we're running out of time to get a deal done. You know, my, my operating kind of calendar, I mean, obviously there's a legislative calendar. We're running out of legislative days. Senate's supposed to go out on Thursday. I mean, you know, um, obviously Senator Schumer could keep them in if it looked like there was a deal. But on the other hand, you know, Senator Lankford, who's one of the lead uh, border negotiators on the Senate side, says no deal in sight. The White House is kind of finally beginning to get into this. I see that the chief of staff of the White House, you know, uh, Jeff Zients is now kind of involved in these negotiations, although not the president, which to me is astonishing. So my operating kind of calendar is after January 15th, the Iowa caucus, when it becomes apparent that, you know, Donald Trump is going to be the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, the chances of getting Republicans in the House to vote for this start to really fade away. And so that we're operating on a very short timeline. And second, I've been screaming and yelling about this since last August. And I've had a sense that the White House had a a, a not adequate sense of the urgency of getting this done on the Hill, that they thought that putting the border in was a nice sweetener for the Republicans, and that was it. It was all going to happen magically. You know, Kevin McCarthy would make it happen. It, to me, that was always sort of, you know, delusional. And I know from talking to Senator McConnell's folks that they were waiting for outreach from the White House to, you know, help them with this. And and I, am I missing something or do you have the same sense? I have the same sense. Uh, I don't think you're missing anything. I I, uh, um, I am glad to see that the White House is finally, finally uh, getting engaged. And I think you're exactly right. The president needs to himself uh, be engaged. I mean, he he um, uh, makes makes the case for him that this is what he does well. You know, in particular in the Senate. Um, so so you would think that. Uh, and in particular with McConnell. <laughs> and in particular with McConnell. Um, um, and, and he's had some success in putting together bipartisan deals in the, in the Congress. So, so, and if it is true, and I believe it is, that he does recognize the importance that you and I just described. He recognizes the importance of Ukraine winning um, uh, um, and, and the importance of Russia losing. I think he does recognize that. And, and this is his now. I mean, he is all in, you would think. And so being all in, you would think he would do whatever is necessary to break this loose. You're, you're right about um, time running out, um, time running out. And so, you know, I haven't given up, but it's getting pretty bad. You know, here we are a couple of days before the, the Senate might go out. Um, um, and uh, and there are two big things to be Worked out. That is the the border and the the, the assistance package. So uh, it's 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 dire. It, which goes back to the point about uh, Zelensky. I mean, um, yeah, he, he was actually down at the inauguration in Argentina, 
uh, and came up here en route back. Um, um, and this was, uh, this was a risk, as you have said, but a risk that he probably thinks he has to take because time's running out and because it's so important. Bill, I wanted to turn to an issue that's been thrown out uh, by a number of opponents of, uh, you know, additional assistance to Ukraine. Uh, there's one kind of argument that they make or people who claim they're for it, but don't really want to vote for it who basically say, well, show us the strategy. What's the strategy here? You know, what's the end game? When does this end? You know, and then there's a second uh, argument, uh, which is, oh, you guys all told us that they were going to have this big counteroffensive and succeed. It failed. So why throw, you know, good money after bad? Some of those arguments are made in totally bad faith. So I don't even want you to necessarily address those. But it is an, an important question, I think, uh, why the counteroffensive did not meet expectations a lot of us uh, certainly hoped for, if if not expected. Um, and we now hear a lot of discussion of of you know new strategy. I mean, I you know spent a couple of days in the Pentagon last week, and I heard a lot of uh, what I would describe as you know ass covering ex post facto rationalizations for why this failed, most of which were along the lines of Ukrainians didn't fight this the way we told them to. They didn't mass their forces in one place and break through to um, Melitopol on the coast and split the Russian forces. They frittered their forces away on Bakhmut and Avdika and getting a lodgment across the Dnipro and Kherson. They just didn't do what we told them. Uh, and they didn't use the equipment we gave them. They didn't use all the armor we sent, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I found borderline. I mean, I could imagine as a Ukrainian how I would have felt it. I heard that. I mean, you know, we expected them to, you know, uh, mass, you know, against this Russian defense in depth, which turned out to be, frankly, I think a lot, denser and and uh, more dug in than uh, even we thought without air cover and superiority. The armor we gave them, our M1 Abrams tanks, didn't show up till late, you know, September when this fight was going on in June, July, and August. So I, I frankly did not find this, you know, very persuasive, but it clearly there's a, you know, a bit of uh, finger pointing going on on both sides. Can unpack all that for us? Thank you, Eric. No, it's, it's, it's interesting what you heard in uh, from from American sources and others. Um, um, so I was in. Uh, uh, so since the big full fledged invasion, I've been to Kiev uh, five times. I'll be the sixth time will be next month. Um, my well, the last trip, which is in October, I had the opportunity to sit down with General Zeluzny. I'd met him one time before, um, many months ago. So in the first maybe three or four months of four or five months of the uh, of the of the full fledged invasion, but. Um, but this time, it was um, the two of us uh, having this conversation, and part of it was part of the discussion. Eric was on this topic, and uh, um, again, this is in October, about the same time, by the way, that uh, he must have been talking to the Economist and writing that uh, essay for the Economist. Um, but he said a couple of interesting things, in particular, looking back on it, kind of thinking about what he said. One, one thing, and your friends in the Pentagon and my old friends in, in, the, in the military um, will be interested in it. He said, armor is obsolete. He said, armor is obsolete. He said, um, 
both sides now, both the Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, can see so well into the battle space, deep into the battle space, that they can see where the massing is taking place and they can see where the thrusts are going to come. Um, and not only can they see them, they can target the, the uh, armor very, very precisely with a lot of different things. He was talking about drones, but it's also, uh, you know, precision artillery and, and other uh, precision weapons. Um, uh, that, and, and that led him to say, he said, he was explicit. He said, uh, uh, armor is obsolete. Um, uh, and he, another thing he said, this was about this time um, that uh, the, the Russians had thrown a lot of their armor into Kupiansk. Um, and had lost incredible amounts, like Adivka, uh, where they continued to lose just uh, incredible amounts um, um, uh, over and over. And like the Ukrainians did in, the, in June um, in the first part of the counteroffensive, they lost just a lot of armor, um, both because uh, the other side could see um, and they could target. Um, so, so that led him to the conclusion, um, which which does get to this question about, about the tactics. You know, yeah, we trained them and we equipped them for combined arms and, and uh, you know, mass, concentrate, breakthrough, exploit, um, shatter the morale of, of the enemy. Um, but it turns out but it turns out that that's real hard um, to do in that in this new circumstance, the new circumstance of uh, of drones of of uh, visibility in 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 both directions, um, and uh, and and so uh, he, General Zeluzhny, um said a couple of interesting things beyond armor is obsolete. He said. He said that um, he has fought this war. Um, uh, and he said, you know, NATO hasn't fought a war uh, like this. Um, and he said, there, we've learned a lot. Um, um, and, and, uh, and one of the things is big armored thrust is not the, not the way to win this war. Um, uh, he also said that he was at, so he's, a, he's quite a scholar. I was impressed. He's quite a military scholar. I mean, a couple of times, um, he, he was in his office, in, in an office. He moves around, of course, but in an office that was pretty well established. Right behind him were, were a big library, a big bookshelf uh, full of, of military history books and, and uh, tactics and strategy. Um, and a couple of times, he reached back and picked, pulled one out and, and, and read from it. In particular, we were talking about stalemate, and we were talking about uh, deadlock. Um, um, he said, you know, this reminds me of, uh, of something I read in, in, in Russian and in Soviet military history uh, about World War I. Um, so all, all to say, he'd given a lot of thought to this. He's a thoughtful man. Um, and and he, said, um, he said, you know, the Chinese, when they invented gunpowder many centuries ago, that changed warfare, he said. And he said, technology is the new gunpowder. He said, whoever exploits takes advantage of, advances, figures out how to use new technology and breakthrough, they're going to, they're going to have an advantage um, on the battlefield. And then he was, of course, talking about drones, but a lot about electronic warfare um, and counter drones um, that, uh, that, you know, don't get the same kind of focus as HIMARS or ATACMS um, or 
Abram thanks, but they're really, he, he sees this technology as being a, a major shift um, in, in warfare. And, um, and, and he says the timeline, the turnaround, the feedback loop between the front line, his headquarters, and the manufacturers who, you know, of drones in little towns and houses around the country uh, is quick. Uh, that feedback loop, feedback loop is, uh, is very quick and efficient. And he says, we do this, you know, we are flexible enough to do this. Um, and I don't think, he said, um, that NATO and the United States um, are, are in the same category, that you can do it as fast as we are. We are fighting a war um, that no one has fought before. Um, um, so that gets to this next question, Eric, that you asked about this possible change in strategy or tactic. I'm not sure which it is here, um, but it is, it is if, if it is true, if uh, Zeluzhny is right, that, uh, uh, that armor, big armor thrusts and, and breakthroughs uh, are not going to happen for the reasons that we've talked about, um, then what is the, what's the next, what, what's, the, what's the alternative? How to win this war, which they're still focused on. And um, the long range fires are provided to them uh, the, with the capabilities of the long-range ATACMs um, and the and the uh, unitary warheads that allows them to go after maybe not destroy the Kirk Bridge, but they can do some real damage to uh, they can disrupt, and if they can do the same kind of thing on the land bridge. So in other words, if they could use long-range fires to go after headquarters, supply dumps, uh, lines of communication, bridges, um, uh, to 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 damage um, the ability, to re re reduce the ability of the Russians to sustain their troops in Crimea or tr uh, to sustain their, sustain their troops in uh, Zaporizhia uh, or, or across from Kherson. Um, if they can do that kind of damage, uh, that's different from trying to break through, you know, well-defended lines. It's, uh, it's more of a, and then you can use infantry, which they've been using. You can, um, use infantry to go across, um, uh, not in the same way tanks did, and certainly not as fast as tanks do. Um, but you can do other tactics to be able to. Be, in the end, you're going to have to occupy territory. And, uh, he understands that, but it's not going to be, in his view, through tanks and armor and infantry fighting vehicles and armored personnel carriers. Um, it's going to be destroying um, uh, Russian sustainment um, and and uh, rear areas. And headquarters, and uh, and then a, a slower, uh, but probably more effective. Well, he hopes more effective uh, infantry tactics. So I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I mean, again, you spent yeah. spent time over there in that building thinking about these things. Well, a couple of things. One is to your point about the training we gave them. Well, number one, yes, we trained them to do combined arms operation, but we trained very small numbers over a very short period of time. As you know yourself, when we do this. We train units, you know, round the clock for the whole year before they go out, you know, to California to the National Training Center where, you know, blue plays, you know, red and red always beats them because this is hard. It's such hard for our guys training year round with all the stuff we have. And we expected the, you know, Ukrainians to master this in six weeks. And, you know, and, and to me, that was always a little bit unrealistic. Um, on the the theme of you know the changing character of of war and uh, 
the technological elements that you and Zeluzhny talked about, that's, of course, the theme in a lot of ways of his uh, lengthy essay that he appended to his uh, interview with The Economist. Uh, and I thought there was a lot uh, that, you know, rang rang true as I, you know, as I read that. I'm not sure Armour is finished. I mean, I, I think it's a little premature to, to write uh, the obituary of the tank, which has, you know, been uh, written, you know, many times. But certainly I'm sensitive to the point he makes about electronic warfare and uh, long-range precision fires being used together with drones, you know, all together to disable the enemy and allow you, you know, to attack. As we speak, the Israelis are using Merkava tanks and are in dire need of shells uh, in Communis. So, you know, I don't think the tank is done just yet. But I don't see Hamas firing back with tanks. No, that's that's true. But I'm just saying there's a place for tanks. It's there not, is a place for tanks. They're but not. They're, they're the not. Battlefield, the battlefield that the Zeluzhny is looking at, you know, is fighting the bloody Russians. No, I get it. Um, who've lost a lot of tanks themselves. Yep. Um, and and certainly, I you know, the long range fires, the Ukrainians have used them to the ones that we've given them to uh, to great effect. Whether it's the High Mars, the Excalibur rounds, the uh, the British uh, Storm Shadow, or uh, the French Scalp uh, E, or the uh, shorter range attackums with the munition with the uh, cluster munitions uh, warheads that we've given them, they've used to great effect against the uh, uh, Russian helicopters, which were uh, part of that kill chain you were describing earlier. They ran into in the early parts of the counteroffensive. It was those Ka fifty two helicopters coming up with uh, standoff. Uh, uh, missiles that uh, were taking out a lot of um, of the Ukrainian uh, APCs and tanks uh, in that initial go round, as I understand it. So they were able to, you know, knock a lot of those out on the ground with the, the cluster variant. Uh, by the way, I still don't understand, uh, even though I've had people in the Pentagon at pretty senior levels explain to me uh, why we can't give them all of those. A cluster version of the attack them because we got about a thousand of them, I think, and and we won't use them because they violate our cluster policy. Now, there's a an argument that was made to me that well, but if we run out of all of our unitary warhead ones in extremis, we would have to use those. I mean, my view of the lesson of this war, or one of the lessons of this war, is this this kind of combat, and I think we would find that in a in a China contingency as well, consume enormous volumes of munitions. And whether it's loitering munitions or 155 shells or tank rounds, as the Israelis are discovering, is just a lot of munitions. And one of the things that, one of the favors that Vladimir Putin has done for us is expose the frailty of our defense industrial base and its ability to mobilize and produce large numbers of these things if, God forbid, we get into a a shooting match with one of these uh, adversaries around the world. So the answer shouldn't be, well, we only have enough to, you know, to meet the demands of our existing, you know, O plans. Um, you know, the answer should be, we got to produce more. So, you know, let's, let's provide the Ukrainians with these things because they're actually fighting one of our O plans right now for us. 
So why don't we, you know, do that to reduce one of our adversaries while we start cranking up the machinery back here to produce more of these things so we could be the arsenal democracy. So that's my take on it. Absolutely. Totally agree. And that's, you know, as you say, kind of a silver lining. They, they, they highlighted the, the need for defense industrial base modernization and expansion again, re-expansion uh, um, to, to, do, to do exactly this. No, I think that's right. You know, on the whole question of Zeluzhny's economist interview and his memo, you know, I, I mean, I find that as, you know, someone who spends some time studying the, you know, future of warfare, very, very interesting. However, I'm not sure if as a sitting defense minister in the middle of a war, I would have actually published that in The Economist or, you know, given it to The Economist to publish, you know, without giving my president a heads up, apparently as I understand it. Well, I mean, what do you make of that entire episode? And what does it tell us about the political dynamic inside inside Ukraine? That's the right question. Um, so my sense of him um, is, a, is a dedicated, focused, professional military officer um, with no political ambitions um, that I could detect or that, you know, that I've seen from others. That's not to say there aren't people who think that he has uh, political ambitions or, or there's not to say that there are people that um, suspect that if he had, if he were to develop political ambitions, he'd be, he'd be formidable adversary to whoever he goes up against. Um, and so that has led to, um, uh, the, the kinds of things that the, uh, people have written about, which is this apparent tension uh, between Zeluzhny and Zelensky, the general and the president. Um, um, they both know, um, they both know the importance of unity. Um, and they both know how dangerous it is or, or would be um, for there to be daylight uh, between the president and the general. Um, but it gets to your question, Eric, the, the, the internal politics um, of, uh, of Ukraine. You know, the, the Ukraine is a real raucous democracy. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it has been uh, arguing and um, debating and, uh, you know, scrapping about uh, about policies having to do with east and west europe and, and russia um nato or not uh, language uh, issues i mean this is a real democracy that has had harsh even um uh, debates about, about these kind of things so they're real but since the 20 24th of february 2022 uh, even the opposition leaders um have fallen in behind Zelensky. Um, and have supported, you know, whether or not he's accepted their support in some real sense, um, they they have there has not been the sniping um, uh, that you got. So I, I was there, Eric. Um, I was in Kiev one of the times uh, just before the invasion. So I was there in January of 2022, at the end of January, probably three weeks before the actual invasion. Yeah, I remember you were there with a couple of other of your former colleague, former I ambassador was, colleagues. I was. And and. Uh, <laughs> Um, and a couple of we had interesting time there because we had to divide up our, our delegation. Um, half had to go to a public event, and two of us, General Hodges, Ben Hodges, and I got to go talk to, to President Zelensky. Um, 
And but we also in that same trip, um, we talked to opposition leaders, um, Yuli Tymoshenko, for example, and uh, Petro Poroshenko. Um, uh, clear opposition leaders um, um, and clearly opposition. And uh, just before the invasion, so three weeks before, they were doing what opposition leaders do, and that is pointing out the problems and pointing out uh, the mistakes that uh, President Zelensky was making. But as soon as the invasion, they all fell in and offered their support. Um, and and that continues. And I and I'm firmly I, I firmly believe that uh, that Zeluzhny, um, is has no political ambitions uh, uh, at, at this point, and so can contribute to this to this unity. Um, that said, there are some you know. So 18 months, you know, I was there at the beginning, but also I've been there, um, you know, last October, for example, and talked to people. And sure, I mean, 18, 19, coming on 20 months of uh, of fighting um, and of horrible conditions, not just for the soldiers, um, I mean, horrible for the soldiers, um, but really bad for the people, uh, for the Ukrainians. I mean, the attacks on the electrical infrastructure um, means that it's cold and dark and, and sometimes hungry and without water because the electricity runs the water pumps. It's, it's, it's miserable. And so you get these tensions and these tensions are going to, going to spill out. And, uh, and, and people were saying, well, you know, we should have been better prepared or, you know, um, you know, what about this, uh, uh, you know, uh, counteroffensive and, you know, there are these kind of little rumblings, but, but the, but the people and the military, um, and even the politicians, um, even no matter what they say kind of privately or quietly, they are strongly supportive of the president, strongly uh, opposed to negotiations, for example strongly opposed to compromises with the Russians to stop it. Uh, very concerned when they hear um, Americans, not, nobody in the U.S. government that I've heard yet, but they are Americans out there who are saying to the U.S. government and to others, you know, it's time's just time, time for negotiations. Uh, you know, the, we should put, the Americans should push on their Ukrainians. Well, the Ukrainians are not buying it. None of the Ukrainians, virtually none of the Ukrainians are, are, are willing to even entertain that. So I'll say that the politics um, are showing the strain. Um, the, the, what's going on there is uh, uh, after 20, 21 months of fighting and of, of uh, miserable conditions, um, they're, they're tired. They are tired. They're not giving up. Um, they will, and go back to our earlier conversation, if, uh, if we get tired and if we stop supplying them with the weapons they need, they'll continue to fight. They will fight on with whatever they have. Europeans are stepping up to some degree, and good for them. Good for them. The Europeans kind of worry that we might be falling off, and we're, Europeans worry about other political changes that might happen, and they're stepping up, um, uh, and they need to step up a lot. They do, and the only problem I have with that is that their uh, defense industrial base is, is even worse shape than ours. Correct. And Correct. Their, therefore, their ability to actually fill uh, the gap, you know, absent a, a U.S., sizable contribution is is somewhat somewhat limited bill you know another argument you hear another criticism you hear of ukraine and and of president zelensky is that he's becoming an autocrat you know they're supposed to have an election and he has said well you know according to the constitution in ukraine you can't have an election when there's uh, you know, martial law in effect, which or a state of emergency, which they have, 
and and therefore he's governing as an autocrat. I mean, you've addressed some of that, you know, already, but it does seem to me that there, you know, it is a an issue to that people are not wrong to be concerned about, right? I mean, it, in other words, it's very easy to slide into, you know, from military necessity to, you know, I am the law. And so how should the U.S. government and uh, European governments think about that and deal with it? And then the second uh, one is, you know, to try and do all the things all of us who support Ukraine against Russia, you know, want to do for Ukraine, whether it's EU membership, whether it's NATO membership, obviously Ukraine has to clean up a lot of the flaws that it's have. I mean, you've rightly pointed out the fact that this is has been for a while a pretty lively, vibrant democracy, but a very flawed one with uh, very significant, in particular, corruption. Uh, to his credit, I think Zelensky has taken steps against some of the uh, Ukrainian oligarchs. Some of that's been facilitated by the fact that a bunch of them were kind of in Putin's pocket, so it made it easier to go after them after February 24th. But it's also opened him up to these charges that he's acting, you know, kind of in a high-handed autocratic way. What can we do to take advantage of the moment that this offers us to clean up, you know, some of these uh, corruption and other other issues uh, that have plagued Ukraine? Absolutely, Eric. No, you're exactly right. So uh, two things: elections, and then the reforms and, and corruption. Um, on elections. Uh, this was prompted. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's against the law. It's against the Constitution for them to have elections when there's a martial law. Uh, uh, they would have to change that. And you can't change the Constitution while you're at war. So while you're in martial law. So, so, so they would have to violate the Constitution to have elections. And the election idea came from some Westerners, actually. Uh, the U.S. senator showed up and came out of a meeting with uh, President Zelensky and said, I think there should be an election uh, this, this year. And uh, um, and so that's kind of, and then there was a European official who uh, made the same um, uh, suggestion or request or, you know, asked the same, uh, the same issue about, you know, about election. And um, uh, the society, as well as the opposition, as well as the government has debated that. It was a serious question. Um, and in the end, after a couple of months of this, again, prompted by some questions from foreigners, um, uh, concluded exactly what you said. C a couple of things. One is um, it's against the law, against the Constitution, it's martial law. Two, um, um, uh, the Brits didn't have, uh, you know, they say the Americans, you know, Americans had elections during World War II. And we said, yeah, but we weren't fighting on American soil. Um, and, and which gets to the point about uh, soldiers. Uh, soldiers, A, would like to vote. Um, and B, soldiers probably like to run. I mean, we talked about Zeluzhny. I don't think he has any interest in it, but there, there are going to be soldiers when the elections come um, who will be popular, who will, and, 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 and Zelensky recognizes that. And it's, as uh, it, it says, this is why we can't have elections now, because we can't pull soldiers out to come, come vote or run campaign because the Russians will take advantage of them not being there. And um, the, the, the concern about, uh, you know, probably seven, eight million Ukrainians who are abroad, mostly women, um, but it would have to vote in, in, in overwhelming numbers in, in uh, Poland and, and, and the Czech Republic and in Germany and in Portugal, um, uh, some here, but uh, it's not set up. There's no yeah. way to do that. 
the mechanics um, would just be very challenging. It would be incredibly challenging and, and expensive. Um, um, people have suggested online voting and, you know, that, that is not, not going to happen in, in more time. All to say that uh, uh, that the opposition and, and even the, you know, the pro-democracy non-governmental organizations, the activists said they signed a big letter saying not now. After the war, the Ukrainians continue to say after the victory, uh, after the war, after the victory, then yes, of course, you have uh, elections. And that's that, that's uh, what, what uh, Zelensky has also said on the or Eric, your question, a good question on reform and corruption. The, the, the EU did an amazing thing. Um, June of 2022, they said, you're a candidate. Ukraine, you and, and Moldova uh, are candidates to, uh, to join the EU. And that has incentivized, that is really prompt, kicked into high gear, um, a lot of reforms, a lot of issues that, have, that are going to be hard for the Ukrainians to do politically. Uh, to bring their systems into alignment with EU standards. But that is a, a heavy reform incentive uh, that, that is going on there. And on corruption, um, you're, you're exactly right. They have done some, some things. They've got big problems. The two biggest sources of corruption that my experience, both, in the, both times I was there, were one, oligarchs, which you talked about, and two, courts. And they're related because oligarchs could buy judges. Uh, but the courts were notorious, notoriously corrupt. Um, uh, in fact, is one of the one of the maybe the worst court, the most corrupt court, was some little court called the uh, Kiev District Administrative Court (KDAC). Kiev District Administrative Court. You say administrative court in one little district. What's the deal? How can it be? Well, it turns out um, that being in Kiev, where the where the government is, um, if you if the government took a decision that you didn't like, you could go to the Kiev District Administrative Court and get it overturned or blocked or somehow. And the chief justice of the Kiev District Administrative Court was almost certainly pro-Russian. I mean, he was pro-Russian and almost certainly taking money um, from the from the Kremlin. And so, so he was a big problem. So what did what is, so when I was there in 2019, I said to uh, to uh, uh, Yermak's predecessor Bogdan, um, I said, you know, it turns out the USAID lawyers have found a way you can get rid of that court. Under your constitution, you can get rid of that court. And Bogdan at the time said, yeah, we'll take a look at it, but it didn't do anything. But last year, so a year ago now, in the middle of this war, Zelensky eliminated that court. I mean, he just wiped it out, number one. Number two, the perception of corruption is measured every year uh, by Transparency International. There are some 200 countries on that. Ukraine used to be in like 166. Um, the Russians were always lower. Uh, the Russians were more corrupt, <laughs> always perceived. But nonetheless, uh, that was not a good place to be. And Ukraine's now, I think, at their, like 116. So they've made a lot of progress. Still not great, 116, you know. Um, um, uh, but they made it, they made big progress beyond the courts that I mentioned about you know um, setting up and and, and establishing the, the uh, National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. They call NABU, and the, uh, the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, SAPO. Um, high anti-corruption court was designed to to, to uh, try. Uh, it's, a, it's a special court to try senior officials who are accused of corruption. And and what Zelensky has done is given them the capability to, to do their jobs, which they didn't have before. Uh, and uh, and they have and they're now restated this the most the most um, intrusive uh, disclo public disclosure financial disclosure for public officials of anywhere, I think anywhere in the world, certainly anywhere in Europe, it's much more than ours. You, you have to list every 
you know, watch or, or a car or flat in Dubai or, you know, apartment in, uh, in Kherson, um, or for you and your wife. And the kicker here is you put it, they, they have, they put it online. So that the very, very, uh, uh, aggressive, uh, press corps can go in there and say, oh, you know, um, this mayor in this town, uh, we know uh, how much money he makes. And we know it, because of this disclosure online, we know he owns some flats in, uh, in, in, uh, in London. What's going on here? How can you, it's all to say, Eric, that they have done a lot on this and they should be given credit. They've got more to do. There's absolutely no doubt about that. They know it. Um, and uh, the people know it. The government knows it and they're taking steps. But uh, I, I think this is one that they are addressing. EU membership is a big thing, um, but also they know it's important for them. Bill, we're running short on time and, and uh, you're in high demand because of the events of the day. So I want to uh, wrap this up. I do want to, uh, you just started to say, I don't think you ever completed the thought that uh, Britain did not have elections during World War II until after VE Day, uh, at, at which point then Prime Minister Winston Churchill was unceremoniously <laughs> turned out of office after having won the war by the British people and replaced by Clement Attlee in the middle of an international conference at Potsdam. So, um, I imagine President Zelensky knows that history. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, he's committed to, uh, to having elections afterwards, after the victory. So I, I really wanted to close on on what I think is the big question sort of facing members of Congress as kind of they look at themselves in the mirror in the morning, uh, whether they get this done, whether they do their jobs and get this done or not, which is uh, what happens if we don't get this? What are the likely consequences, you know, in uh, in Ukraine? I mean, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has said there is no plan B, you know, we run out of money. Now, of course, they run out of money um, to replenish U.S. stocks, but uh, there's still a lot of stuff that uh, was procured by the uh, Ukraine Security Assistance uh, Initiative funds that have were put on contract that haven't been delivered yet. So there will be some continuing delivery of, of some items for a you know, period of the next year. That's not enough to sustain the Ukrainians, but it's something, it's not nothing. Um, and there is this Lend-Lease authority that the Congress gave the administration uh, before the big packages got got approved. So what's your sense of the uh, consequences and what's the plan B? So the plan Bs are, are not well established and you've just gone over a couple of them. When I asked about uh, Lend-Lease uh, earlier, before it looked like they were, we were gonna run out of money, uh, uh, the answer from your old colleagues in the Pentagon um, was, you know, why would we use Lend-Lease uh, when we're we're providing this uh, drawdown authority? Uh, Lend-Lease, they're going to have to pay it back. Um, but now it turns out um, that, that I, I imagine they're taking a look at that. Um, you know, there there is that authority there. There are there are questions about the levels of stocks, and I would say that one of the it's not a Plan B, but another minor issue, they can look to see if they've been how conservative they've been on, on drawdown of stocks. Now, you, you will know more than I about uh, these operation plans in other parts of the world that, that demand, that require um, stocks of, uh, of- War reserve of stocks, yeah. War reserve stocks. Um, and and you know, we're pretty conservative about that. And you know normally we should be. This is the war. 
this is the time. And as you said, we're, we're starting to crank up our ability to replace those. Um, so that we that the, the, you know, we may not have a, 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 a plan B. The Ukrainians are thinking about this, as I say, they are, um, they're talking with the Europeans, Europeans are working on their plan B. Um, um, uh, but, but frankly, the sad thing is, uh, what Zelensky said last time when he was here, and I imagine he, we may hear it again, is if this is not passed, um, they will have a real hard time winning this war. They will have a very hard time. And and then and then Eric, you and I will be asking questions. You know, I hate to use the kind of you know, if if Ukraine is lost, um, if if Russia wins and Ukraine loses. Um, we're going to be asking ourselves, why was that? Um, you know, uh, and and the consequences of that, of Russia being on the border, it's already on the border, of course, of uh, Finland and, and Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, but on the border with Poland and, and Romania, um, um, uh, and to see what the Russians will do um, um, if if they win this war, which you know, it, their odds go up um, if we don't provide these weapons. And the same thing in the other parts of the world. The other, the other things that, you know, if, if, if President Xi sees that the Americans are not there for the Ukrainians and give up on the Ukrainians, get tired, or can't, can't uh, meet their commitments, he's emboldened. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, so so there, there are dire consequences here, which again goes back to what we started to talk about at the beginning. This is why Zelensky's here, just to, to be able to, to make, that, make that case. Hard to disagree with any of that. Our guest has been Ambassador Bill Taylor. Bill, um, thank you for all of your service to the nation and your continued service at, at uh, USIP. And I know how active you've been um, in terms of this Ukraine uh, fight and um, always on the side of the angels. So thank you and hope we can have you back uh, from time to time on Shielded Republic to take the temperature on where we are in Ukraine. Hopefully not to debate who lost Ukraine. Eric, it's an honor, a pleasure to be here. I love talking with you about these kinds of things and I'd, I'd love to do it again. Thanks, Bill.